If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. We're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the October 5th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we take a look at a flexible former junkie. We meet a million-dollar realtor and revisit a piece from Steve Pride on the first legal marriage in the U.S. nearly half a century ago, and talk to a Cameroon survivor of corrective rape. Finally, Steve Pride sits down with PETA's Dan Matthews. But first, we take a look at a landmark 2007 documentary on religion, just as its sequel finds release. For the Bible tells me so. Does God really condemn loving homosexual relationships? Or is the Bible just an excuse to hate? If homosexuals are allowed their civil rights, then so would prostitutes or thieves or anyone else. Marriage cannot be severed from its cultural, religious, and natural roots. The rancorous debate is part politics, part religion, part science. Is homosexuality a sin? Is it a choice? It is sin because the Bible says so. I've never seen a man in my life I wanted to marry. <laughs> if one ever looks at me like that, I'm going to kill him and tell God he died. God says in the Old and the New Testament that it's an abomination. God calls it an abomination. It's an abomination. Director Daniel Carslake brilliantly tackles this question in the critically acclaimed documentary, For the Bible Tells Me So. According to his co-writer and co-producer, Helen Mendoza, it started with a phone call from my good friend Daniel Carslake, the producer-director. We have been looking for a project to do together for a long time, and this just happened along the way. But the real journey with this film began with In the Life, uh, the magazine on PBS. Dan convinced them to do their very first piece on religion. Up until that time, they had not been doing pieces on religion. So he interviewed a woman named Irene Monroe, who was also in our film. It aired on PBS and um, Dan got an email a few days later from a young man in Iowa. It was five lines, and it said, Last week I bought the gun. Yesterday I wrote the note. Last night I watched your show. And knowing that maybe someday I could walk into my church with my head held high, this morning I threw the gun into the river. My mother never has to know. 
nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the 2007 Sundance Film Festival. For the Bible Tells Me So, swept the Audience Awards at Outfest in Los Angeles, the Provincetown Film Festival, the Fresno Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, and the Seattle International Film Festival, to name just a few of its accolades. For the Bible Tells Me So can be rented on iTunes. Its sequel, For They Know Not What They Do, is now available on Apple TV, iTunes, Amazon Prime, and DVD. Joe Putignano was a flying acrobat with Cirque du Soleil. He was also a junkie who was high when he was high. Steve Pride reports. Joe Putignano is an acrobat. He's performed on Broadway and at the Metropolitan Opera House. He was the original Crystal Man, bringing light and the spark of life to mankind in Cirque du Soleil's Totem. He's a sexy fitness model, the boy next door with a million-dollar smile and a body to die for. And technically, he did die. Because just a few years ago, Cho was a homeless junkie. My name is Joe Putignano, and I am a gymnast contortionist with Cirque du Soleil and the author of Acrobatics. Around the age of eight, I was watching the 1984 Olympics, and I saw gymnastics for the very first time, and I knew in that moment that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was my one religious moment where I felt like God came in and said, this is who you're supposed to be. And I immediately took the cushions off the couch and started flipping. I was trying to mimic exactly what I saw. I couldn't, of course. I intuitively knew what to do, but I just needed kind of the guidance to get there. And a month later, I learned my first backflip, and my parents put me in class. And after that, I took off, you know, like a match to gasoline, and it was just literally became my passion, my everything. I love to talk about gymnastics in the early days because... That was when the passion was so exciting. And I love to talk about how the passion changed later <laughs> in my life into addiction, which is obsession. What were your parents like? They were consumed with their own alcoholism. And since I was the baby, they were kind of done raising kids. They didn't give me what I guess a child needed at that point. And they thought I was okay because of gymnastics. Like I was doing this thing I was really good at and passionate. And I was kind of a good quiet boy, so they didn't think I needed any parenting, which in hindsight we all could see that I really needed some tools at life. But, you know, I love them. When did your addictions begin? Around 15. My progression was very textbook. I started smoking pot and then uh, tried acid, and then it was that whole 90s rave thing in Boston, which was extremely exciting for me because it was so opposite of gymnastics. It's actually when I first discovered I was gay, or I should say accepted I was gay. And the rave world, to me, you know, it was like a fantasy where it was like heaven crashed into the earth, and gymnastics was so clean-cut, disciplined, that this was just the polar opposite, and I, I fell in love with it. So the rave scene definitely introduced me to Crystal and Kay and all the club drugs. And then ultimately I went to Coke and 
had a problem with that and then had really bad problem with prescription drugs. And I was kicked out of college twice and sent to rehab. I lost my grants and I ended up homeless. I thought there was something wrong with me and there was. I was definitely sick, but I couldn't name it. I couldn't understand there was this desperation inside of me, this urgency. In 12-step recovery, we call it a God-sized hole. That's a good description. And drugs at the time seemed to fill that. It seemed to make me feel complete. So when I was faced with mundane things or going to college or you know being a good human being, I couldn't because the addiction was so consuming. And of course, when one's high, they're not going to do the most healthiest things or, or make great judgments or choices. My addiction in college was actually worse than my heroin addiction. I know that sounds odd, but I was able to control heroin a little bit more because I had learned the longer you do drugs, the more you become better at becoming a functioning addict. And I know that's kind of an oxymoron to say a functioning heroin addict, but it becomes medicinal. You learn how to get away with it. The job of an addict in the end becomes how to keep this feeling, do whatever I can to keep it, and make believe and make the rest of the world think that I'm actually not on anything. I could admit what I was doing wasn't good. I, you know, I'd been arrested and all these things. Like it, I had the things in life that one could definitely say you have a problem with drugs and alcohol happening, car accidents and homelessness and uh, overdoses. But the acceptance of actually admitting that this is what I was would mean that I would have to do something about it. So if you don't admit it, then you can kind of live in that state of denial How did heroin make you feel? Heroin is a painkiller. If someone's in a lot of pain, it's an excellent drug. And what I mean by that, it's not a physical pain. We're human beings. We have a lot of internal pain. We have a lot of psychological pain. If for someone who is suffering from that and and takes heroin, which makes them feel euphoric and numb, as if they're on fire on the inside, they never, ever want to let go of something like that. And for me, I had damaged my life so much from previous drugs and and from the lifestyle of addiction, that once I got to heroin, it was as if God was holding me. And I never, ever wanted him to let me go. When I was high on heroin, I felt safe. I felt protected. I felt loved. I felt cared for. And those are the things that I didn't feel in life. So once I started using this, it seemed like the solution to life. Like, shouldn't one feel better? Is that so wrong? And I would say, no, it's not. It's okay, and people should feel better. Unfortunately, with addiction, especially mine, to keep an addiction going, you're destroying not only your own life, but the lives of those who love you. And then you have to do uh, criminal things to keep a very expensive addiction going, which, of course, I had to do. So, yeah, addiction is the hottest and most difficult full-time job that you can never quit. (laughs) Heroin, in fact, killed you two cardiac deaths, which meant my heart stopped. That was not enough to get me sober. I actually was, uh, I think, 19 or 20, so I was very arrogant in my invincible God years. And I thought I beat death. Look at me. Look how strong I am. Even this can't kill me. Why were you so unhappy? I don't know. I'm not special. I'm not unique. I'm not some incredible person. I'm just a human and we all have suffering. 
what I chose to do with my suffering was destructive, though I thought it was going to save me. But I really hated myself for not making it to the Olympics because that was my destiny. It's what I thought I was going to do. So I felt like a failure every day for the rest of my life. I hated myself for being gay. And I didn't have really good coping tools for life. Transitioning from homeless junkie back to working acrobat, you continued using. When I discovered gymnastics movement, a lot of dancers can relate to this. When they move, they're on fire. There's a lightning inside of them. And then I switched to drugs, which gave me a similar feeling, got sober, and then went back to the origin of my euphoria, which was gymnastics. You would think that would be enough. You would think the disease would be uh, satisfied. For me, it wasn't because I was already an addict, and I'll never forget I was performing at the Metropolitan Opera House. I was doing Turandot, and the lead soprano, Andrea Gruber, was a recovering opiate addict. And here I was, I had just shot up. I tumbled on stage, and then I would listen to her aria and pray to God that her voice would just heal me somehow, would get me clean. And those moments I'll never forget because I was absolute desperation, sitting there in front of the, the audience, thinking that this power would somehow heal me, and save me, and it couldn't. Then I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> When your art can't save you, who can? Well, what did make you stop? Oh, here's the deal with mental illnesses and addictions. What I don't think people understand is that they're progressive and they're fatal. And this is both mental illness and addiction. If you don't treat it, it actually gets worse over the years. I could see this in my own life, and I knew this just from talking to so many therapists throughout my life. And I was terrified of being the 50-year-old guy who was still shooting up. That was the thought that said, this is as good as life will ever be right now at this moment. You, $20, a syringe and a spoon. This is Christmas. This is Thanksgiving. This is your family. This is your love. Do you want more? Of course I did. I just couldn't do it. And at that point, I believed I was way too sick to recover. Before, I didn't think I had a problem. And now I thought my problem was too severe to actually get clean. When I went to 12-step, I was like, these people are just, you know, light users in comparison to what I did. But that's the arrogance of Joe <laughs> and the arrogance of addiction and ego of course, lots of them use like I did. People do every day, right now. It was that thought along with this tiny flicker inside of me, this flame, this spark of life would not extinguish. And it's the worst feeling to want to kill it, but to have hope not die. It's so much easier to surrender, you know, fully. It wouldn't. So that coupled with the thought of growing old as an addict was just like you have got to give everything you have to get better and I did how long have you been sober I'll have eight years on March 25th hopefully if I stay sober till then hopefully so it's still a struggle it's not a struggle where I think I'm going to just shoot up 
But yeah, life is difficult. Life is difficult for everyone, and it's the behavior that is attached to addiction. The first two years of sobriety, I held on for dear life, not to use heroin. Every day, it was it was very difficult, which is really my message out there to anyone with an addiction is to not give up because I didn't just get clean overnight. I was in 12-step and rehabs from age 19 to 29 failing. So if you're out there and you are suffering and you you are like me and you can't do it, just don't give up. Don't give up. If you have a pulse and a heartbeat, you have a chance. This is my conversation with Joe Budignano, author of Acrobatic, a contortionist heroin romance. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Joe, still in touch with Steve Pride, is a registered nurse living with his partner in New York City, preparing for a work move to Boston. These days, the only needles he uses are on his patients. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The power of Frida Kahlo, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Mexican born in 1907, Frida Kahlo's international iconic status is attributed to the strength and power of her work. Childhood polio and severe injuries in a streetcar accident left her with a life dominated by a struggle with severe pain and disability. Kala started painting after the accident, creating over 200 paintings and drawings depicting her life experiences, physical suffering, and her on-again, off-again marriage to muralist Diego Rivera. While she had affairs with both men and women, her incorporation of male drag projected power and independence in her works that centered on herself. When asked why she painted so many self-portraits, she said, Because I am so often alone. Because I am the person I know best. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Jeb Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Barbara Cornicello. Hello, I'm Trucker Patty, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. If loneliness drives some girls to prostitution, it drives some men in another direction. The history of homosexuality is as long as the history of man. From the glory that once was Greece to the decadence that destroyed Rome, homosexuality has been both despised and idolized. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Frederick the Great, Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo are but some of the names that any homosexual will point to as examples of virility and a defense of his way of life. Though nothing new, homosexuality is having an upsurge since the war. Whether it is an actual increase or merely an increased public acceptance is a point to be argued. The Mattachine Society, an organization for homosexuals, claims that one male out of six is homosexual. Homosexuals no longer hide in shadows, giving secret signals of recognition to each other. 
but rather they have joined together into groups or clubs in an attempt to seek freedom and acceptability for their type of sexual inclination. They can be found in all walks of life and on any street in this lonely world, forever searching for whatever it is that drives them on. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles is certainly a less guilty pleasure than any below-deck housewife, although it does have its moments of over-the-top reality drama. I live in a tiny house with a tiny yard in a neighborhood that's still a few more years away from being trendy. But I'm obsessed with Bravo's Million Dollar Listing. Although the original has spun-off versions based in New York and Miami, it's the original LA-based property porn that inhabits my heart and a 29-year-old agent named Josh who makes it fabulous. Hi, my name is Josh Flagg. When it debuted in 2006, the format of Million Dollar Listing was different than the show we know today. It was originally a... uh show about, I don't know, five or six different realtors. It was broken up into little parts, and they were all selling big houses, small houses. It was a very eclectic group of people. And then they retrofitted the uh, program, and they brought on three agents, and they brought probably a, a more younger demographic in, and the ratings went sky high. I mean, it was just, just a completely different show now. It's, you know, it's now it's three young brokers selling multimillion-dollar properties in Beverly Hills, how were you cast on the show? Basically, they did a casting call, and, and of course, I got a call because they had heard about me because I was so young at the time selling these expensive houses in Beverly Hills. So they called me, the production company that does the show, and I went in, and apparently they went through lots of tapes for lots of different people, but with mine, they just saw it and they were like, this is it. I guess they liked what they heard on the, on the, uh, they, they videotaped me at first, you know, and they sent it off to New York and New York liked it and they approved. And, uh, apparently, I mean, I, I heard back very quickly. So I was very surprised. Actually, I wasn't surprised. I was, I was, I was, I was surprised. Yeah. Tell me about your family. Well, let's see. On my mother's side, I'm a third-generation Los Angelino. My great-grandfather was one of the founders of the Jewish community here in Los Angeles. He was one of the founders of the City of Hope, of Sinai Temple, of many, 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 many important Jewish uh, foundations. And uh, so that family, the Platt family, goes way back. And then my father's side, uh, are I'm a first-generation, I guess, because uh, my father was born during the war, and he was born in Holland. So it's completely different. And, you know, my grandmother comes from an old money family. My my mother, my, excuse me, my mother comes from an old money family. My father came here with his mother. She came here with $2 in her pocket. And, you know, of course, she made a quite a bit of money from that, which is, it's really amazing, her story, but she came here with nothing. It's, it's amazing. And how did you get into real estate? 
I wanted something to do with houses, to either be an architect or an interior designer or something to do with houses. But I didn't really want to work for other people in the sense I didn't want to go, you know, shopping for furniture for other people. Or I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be sitting at the drafting table and all that. So I just thought I may as well, may as well just sell the big houses. And, and I had the contacts and I knew I could do it. And I was I'm pretty good with people. And uh, that's basically how it came to be. And you started in high school. I started at the tail end of high school, correct. I was still in high school. I was 18, so I could legally do it. But it's a little difficult when you have a, a math test on one side, and then on the other side you have a uh, California purchase agreement for a property. When you joined Million Dollar Listing in 2008, your sexuality wasn't mentioned, and you didn't ping my gaydar. So your sudden fabulosity last season really surprised me. Was there... Out and proud. <laughs> Outside of the was mind. there a conscious decision on your part or the World of Wonder producers to paint? Oh, please. Oh, if, just... it was, if it was up to World of Wonder, I would have come out on the air years ago. Bravo would have loved that. But, you know, they had to wait till I was comfortable and it took me a while. But finally I decided, you know, this is ridiculous. Not because of my own insecurities. Well, partly because of that, but also because of it wouldn't allow the cameras into my personal life. You can't really have the cameras tracking your personal life. Or, you know, I have a boyfriend. How are you going to, what am I supposed to do? Walk around with a, with a girlfriend all that? I, it doesn't work, you know? It just didn't work. So eventually I was just like, this is ridiculous. I mean, I'm already openly gay. and This is stupid. And the fear was probably that it would hurt my business before. So I didn't want to come out on TV. And I didn't want to do the whole Madison thing, which was, you know, a whole big gay coming out thing. So. What is the big difference between Josh Flagg, the person, Josh Flagg, the reality star? Nothing. I don't really hold back when it comes to the camera. Some put on a shtick, I guess. All of the Bravo shows I know are pretty much reality-based, so the characters you see on Bravo are, that's who they are on uh, in real life. You know, the Real Housewives, like, any of the ones that I've met are pretty much like that in real life. I am the same exact person I've been since I was 17 years old. That's, I think, what people don't understand. I think I, when, it was a lot different 10 years ago, coming out in high school, than it is today. Well, at least I guess it is. I'm not in high school anymore, but it seems today that it's much easier for kids. But when I was in high school, it was just at the end cusp when it was just, it was acceptable, but it was still like, you know, there wasn't like a, it wasn't like there was a group of them. And certainly in the private school where I went, I for sure was the first in my class, if not in the school that came out. And it wasn't like a whole big to-do coming. It was just like, hey guys, okay, I'm gay. All right, deal with it, whatever. And nobody really cared, but you could tell people were not – it wasn't like today when it's just like, oh, yeah, he's gay, he's straight. He's gay, he's straight. Today was – so I'm very comfortable with it, and I have been since I was 17. And if anyone ever asks me, you know, I always tell them, you know, are you straight, gay? What I, I mean, I tell them right up front, no problem. I could care less. I, I just don't wear a sign on my forehead because I don't think it's what defines somebody as a person. I don't think it's the most important thing. Some people think that's the most important thing. They need to be out and proud and blah, 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 and – Believe me, I have no problems whatsoever. I mean, you want me to go on a float in a parade? I'll go on a float in a parade. But it's just not what's important to me. Real estate's important to me. My boyfriend's important to me. Traveling's important to me. Going to dinner with friends is important to me. But not being out and proud, that's not important to me. Should straight people be proud to be straight? I mean, they don't go around being, oh, I'm straight. But that's just how I am. Other people like to make a to-do of it, and that's fine. That's why we're all different people. Does that make me a terrible uh, guest on your show? Not at all. This has been a conversation with Josh Flagg. 
Season 7 of Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles is currently airing on the Bravo Cable Channel. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you a house I would buy you a house And if I had a million dollars Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles has aired on Bravo since August 2006. Josh has since wed fellow real estate agent Bobby Boyd, and his beloved grandmother has passed away. Same-sex relationships are taboo across much of Africa, which is some of the world's most prohibitive laws against homosexuality. But few countries are as assiduous in applying them as Cameroon whose penal code punishes sexual relations between persons of the same sex with up to five years in prison. In Cameroon, being gay is against the law. If the person who shares your love shares your gender, you'll be hunted down. You'll be imprisoned. Until recently, Gertrude worked discreetly for Alternatives Cameroon, the first and only LGBT center in her homeland. She doesn't speak English, but with the help of a translator, shares her story. My name is Olatunji Karimou. Uh, moi, c'est Gertrude Mirabel Mitiegum. So she's saying that I am Gertrude Mirabel Mangubu. And when did you know you were lesbian? Ça fait aujourd'hui, comment je suis? Well, I have been living this life for, like actively living this life for 22 years now. And the way it came to me is uh, I was always among the women. And from the very early age, as early as five, I was attracted to women. What are the challenges of being a lesbian in Cameroon and especially working at what is a kind of secret gay and lesbian center? Well, I don't even know how to put this in words. It's just frightening. Being lesbian in Cameroon, you have to hide all the time. There is no word to describe this. You go out and you look at everybody like everybody knows that you gay. You don't know who is telling the police what, and they can come and burst at your door at any time. So to live with that on a daily basis is just frightening. Just working in Cameroon as a lesbian is hard because you constantly thinking that people will know, so people have that fear. But uh, working for Alternative Cameroon is even harder because it already has that tag of being uh, lesbian and gay uh, friendly. But inside the building of Alternative Cameroon, she feels more confident. She has these people around. And knowing also the, how it will help other people, give them more strength, and she feels more courageous being inside. But once outside, although she has all this training to know how to respond, how to react, she's still fearful. You know, It's like being outside in the wild with people, eyes all around you. So she feels fearful every time she steps out of the building. A lot of people don't know that much about Cameroon. What are the repercussions of being gay there, both legally and uh, societal? 
la loi camerounaise, comme j'ai dit tantôt... Being lesbian in Cameroon is pretty much a sentence you have dangling on your head all the time. They do have this uh, penal code 345 bis that stipulates that anybody that's been caught having sex with somebody else of the same gender could go for from five to ten years in prison, and that was before, and recently it has been um, extended or added to. Now it's from five to 15 years if you get caught or if you have been accused of being lesbian. That's the law, and that's one thing. But the reality is they're not actually following the law through the truth because all it needs is for somebody to go to the police and say, oh, this one is a lesbian, and that's it. That's enough. They will come to your door, break your door, and you're in trouble. So the simple fact that somebody could just go to the police and say, oh, this person here is having or is in a, a lesbian or a gay, that's enough for the police to come and arrest you. And that's what she called the arbitrary arrest. I'm a little hesitant to bring this up. This is very personal. I asked about corrective rape, because we don't hear that term very often. Is that prevalent? Oui. Le viol, ça, oui. Ici, um, oh, well, it's happening. It's happening a lot. And uh, they, they're getting even a little more sophisticated. You know, they will go online and pretend that they're gay and lesbian because they know that they're hiding. And, of course, they use the, the online also. They will go trying to match up, to connect with people. And then they will have a rendezvous. And then you find yourself facing five, seven people and they, they raped you. And there is no way for you to know if that person you're chatting with is a real person that's in love with you or want you, but you just have to take the risk. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. They do that. They just go online, pretend that they want to be friends with you, and once you go out to meet with them, well, you find yourself in this situation, and uh, it's happening a lot. Is it too personal? Can I ask about your attack? Oui, je vais le faire pour euh, que les gens, les gens comprennent ou sachent ce, ce qui se passe au Cameroun. Oui. Mm -hmm. She thought she won't talk about it anymore, but she will do it just so people can understand what's going on. Because you said it before you start, people don't know much about it. So she's willing to talk about it because she thinks people need to know what's happening. Ça, j'étais un peu plus jeune que ça. I was younger, Et, uh, way younger. And uh, in our group at the convent, we heard about one of our friends that was sick. So I was with two other of my friends, and we decided to go pay a visit to that friend. So the way to get to the convent, you get to a point, and there is two ways. There is a longer way, and there is a shortcut, but it has to go through a stadium. It's a little darker, but there is a police station very close to the stadium, and they thought that it would be safer with the police station there. So they decided to go through that darker road through the stadium with the police station next to it. Oui. Uh, it was about 7 p.m. And 7 p.m. is darker over there already. Yeah. 
là où en plein centre just du as stade, we were crossing right in the middle of the stadium all of a sudden we heard some men's voice hey you lesbian girls come over here and then they stopped and they saw the men coming out from the obscurity and they knew right there that they were in danger and they held at them like lesbian lesbian but she knew that the two other girls were not lesbian so she found herself in a position to defend herself she thinks she has to she did a little bit of martial art and she tried to fight but of course it was a uh, pointless and, um, i was pretty much the one trying to fight and all i remember that at some point i got knocked down i got knocked out i do remember there were about four men but i could hear more people coming but i cannot say for sure i uh, woke up about a week later in the hospital and i heard that one of the girl uh, was dead due to the attack and till today the third one never recovered 100% What do you want people to know about Cameroon? There is so much we could say about Cameroon, but for the sake of uh, the cause I am fighting for, I will uh, keep it to talking about lesbian. And uh, I really want it for people to know, understand that we do exist, we're real, we're there. And As I've seen in Los Angeles for the few days I've been here, I just wish we could just live like that and be able to be ourselves. But unfortunately, we're still hiding. What's it been like to be here, to be in West Hollywood, Los Angeles, and <laughs> see this community? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, you heard it? The, the very first uh, feeling is, wow. Oh, wow. And the deuxième, c'était une goutte de larmes. <laughs> of course, after seeing all this, I couldn't help. I, I cried a little bit. Thank you so much for being here today. Merci beaucoup. Merci d'être venu. Merci pour la réponse. And she said thank you too. Gertrude was profiled in the documentary Born This Way, outing herself to her country and the world. So she now lives in San Francisco while seeking political asylum. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Oh, a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, oh yes, I'm gonna fade away. This Way, a documentary featuring Gertrude Malong, is available to watch free on the Tubi app. Gertrude now lives in San Francisco with her girlfriend. We'll be right back after this quick break. Writer Richard Rodriguez, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Richard Rodriguez was born in 1944 into a Mexican immigrant family in San Francisco, California. He spoke little English as he entered first grade. But after the nuns at his school encouraged his parents to speak only English at home, he started making great strides. Ultimately, he earned a degree in English at Stanford, one in philosophy at Columbia, and a PhD in Renaissance literature at the University of California. 
Rodriguez gained fame with his 1982 book, Hunger of Memory, Education of Richard Rodriguez, a narrative about his intellectual development. He came out in his 1992 book of essays titled Days of Obligation. Rodriguez has worked as teacher, international journalist, and educational consultant and has appeared on the PBS show NewsHour. In 1997, he received a George Foster Peabody Award for his NewsHour essays on American life. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Raul Cantu. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? I am, are you? I am, are you? Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night, or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Founded 40 years ago, the motto of PETA or People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, is animals are not ours to experiment on, eat, wear, use for entertainment, or abuse in any other way. Steve Pride sat down with PETA Senior VP Dan Matthews and filed this report. Love it or hate it, mentioning PETA People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals is unavoidable when talking about animal rights, and that's largely due to the efforts of Dan Matthews, the six-foot-five former fashion model whose first job was flipping burgers at his dad's restaurant, joined PETA in 1985 answering their phones, and today is Senior Vice President and Director of their controversial publicity campaigns. Matthews talks about his life as an out gay man and animal activist in his book, Committed, a rabble-rouser's memoir. It is about how a reluctant party boy ended up devoting his life to a cause. It's a memoir, but it's done in about 15 standalone chapters, each with its own set of freaks, people that I've encountered in my life. I've always looked at life as a big black comedy, and I always wrote really just for myself to make sense of it. And over the years, I would do articles for different magazines as a way to help make ends meet beyond my meager PETA salary. And one thing after the other, it's sort of led to, to doing a book. It's not something I set out to do, but it's been uh, very, very exciting. Uh, it's even coming out in Australia now. <laughs> and what does he think will surprise the reader most about his book? Well, I think PETA's humor is evident in some of our campaigns, but not overall. And I think humor isn't really very present in most pressure groups. And to me, it's always been essential. I mean, I think a lot of people burn out with causes, whether it's gay causes or animal causes or any cause, if they don't lighten up a little bit. All the information can be such an overload. It can be so dire. And a lot of people become morose because of it. I've always sought to organize campaigns that were much more exuberant and fun, things like the rather go naked than wear a fur campaign. Things like the fur is a drag campaign, which has involved everyone from Lady Bunny and Boy George to Katie Lang actually dressing as a girl. 
And I've always thought that campaigns should be fun because the, the whole point is to try to attract more people, not just their support, but to make them feel like they should learn more about an issue because the information about animal cruelty is just so overwhelming. I mean, there's you know issues like animals being blinded and scalded in laboratories and electrocuted and drowned on fur farms. And it's just that outrage is why I got involved in animal rights. But to try to attract other people, I think it's best to be fun. Although he never ran with scissors, the chapters in which Dan talks about his childhood rival Augustine Burroughs for sheer hilarity. You know, I grew up really in a white trash area and you know started looking after animals at a very young age, but I had a mother who was an orphan, and she never really had any guidance about what was right or wrong in life, so she just sort of made things up as she went along. And, of course, her instincts are you know, a lot more progressive than, than most people's. She always urged me and my brothers to consider being gay. She thought there was something extra special about that. And it's odd that I'm the only one who actually became gay or the only one who was gay. It's certainly a definitive argument about whether it's environmental or not. It's not. It's just who you are. Like if your eyes are brown or blue. And the seed that grew into the empathy that defines Dan's adult life was planted in that childhood. To me, it just seemed like cruelty was cruelty. And the kind of people who are cruel were the same guys who used to beat me up for being gay. And so I always saw from a very young age that animals needed help. They needed somebody to interfere on their behalf. It's easy to forget that back in the day, this was not a cool cause. When I first got involved in animal rights in the late 70s, it was something associated with Doris Day or Betty White. It was like a granny cause. So it was really odd. The first few protests I went to, it was me and a a few of my punk rock friends and a bunch of grannies. It was like Lawrence Welk meets the Sex Pistols on the streets. Uh, And there was no media to speak of, really, at these early things. So, uh, you know, being from the pop culture MTV generation, I always really could recognize the value in getting more artists involved and getting celebrities involved to help attract attention so that it wouldn't just be thought of as some kooky old lady cause. And so, yeah, making it sexy, making it funny, you know, like coming up with a whole Rather Go Naked Than Wear Fur campaign, which is really put PETA on the map all around the world. And the sort of things that inspired me to do that are all in the book. And so it's been exciting. Matthews believes that animal rights is a cause especially relevant to our community. Well, there's always been a huge crossover with gays and lesbians and and animal rights. Uh, First off, our spokespeople have included people like um, uh, everybody from Boy George and Melissa Etheridge to Lady Bunny and uh, Morrissey and bands like Erasure, Sandra Bernhard, Martina Navratilova remains one of our biggest spokespeople. I think it's because gays grow up in a world where they know a lot of people look down at them or consider their suffering or their plight irrelevant. And I think a lot of people act like that about animals. They think it's just an animal. Who cares if they're suffering? My suffering is more important. And I think when people hear that attitude about animals, especially gays, it hits home with them because they realize that, you know, these animals have lives that are, they just want to survive. They just want to get by. They have good times, they have bad times, and they don't need these people uh, basically ruining their lives, taking away their nature, and uh, being so disrespectful about it, about their lives. And so I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, gays often feel like outsiders, and animals are sort of the ultimate outsiders. Besides promising not to wear a coat made of Dalmatian puppies, what can an individual do? I think the most important thing things people can do is to learn more about the issue. We have a really great website, PETA.org, which documents not only um, a lot of our crazy campaigns, but a lot of the real issues behind them and to educate yourself you know we believe in freedom of choice you should be able to eat what you want and wear what you want it should just be an educated choice and I think learning about these issues and being open to the idea of 
becoming a vegetarian or looking for alternatives to leather, which do exist. Um, and to realize that you can have a great life without killing. If anybody wants to check out my MySpace page, there's a few sample chapters there. Uh, Dan Matthews with just one T. And you can read a little bit more about it. There's whole chapters on thrift shopping and things like that that are a bit of a diversion for it. So um, hope you check it out. It's in libraries if you want to check it out from libraries or even steal it. I don't care. This has been a conversation with Dan Matthews, Senior Vice President of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals and the author of Committed, a Rabble Rouser's Memoir. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If we could talk to the animals, learn their languages, maybe take an animal degree. I'd study elephant and eagle, buffalo and beagle, alligator, guinea pig and flea. I would converse in polar bear and python. In 2007, Matthews was ranked 37th in Out Magazine's 50 Most Powerful Gay Men and Women in America. More information on PETA can be found at PETA.org, P-E-T-A dot org. There's time for a last word. Today, that's an audio essay from Joel Perry. One Man's Food by Joel Perry. Food, glorious food, chewy. I look at going into a grocery store as a battle to get out with the most food for the least money. I enter with sale items memorized in a thick stack of coupons. I compare prices and read labels. I am a sensible shopper and an aware consumer, and it all goes out the window when Fred decides he wants to come along. Now, Fred is the love of my life and a joy to know. He is also a food packager's wet dream. When he sees a bright and shiny can of Pillsbury cinnamon rolls with icing or a beckoning box of Ritz bit sandwiches and peanut butter or cheese, his eyes glaze over like tasty cakes. No amount of, but this is half the price of that, works. His is a force against which I am powerless and I must resign myself to the fact that I will not be paying cash this trip. Fred likes food that is fun. That includes anything with pockets, pouches, or toaster in the name. Oh, and it has to sound jolly to make or eat. Cheese poppers, snack wraps, bagel bites, apostrophes and silly spelling increase the fun quotient. The very kicky dippin' sticks with an X had both, so he bought two boxes. Anything with n in the middle, like shake n bake or brown n serve, and he's out of control. We have two cats, and he still tried to buy kibbles n bits. A can of frosting is way fun. How, I asked, struggling to understand, it just sits there in the can. As if explaining to a child, he told me, Frosting is fun because you can put it on anything and it improves everything. If somebody invents a product called Toastin' Poppin' Fun Sticks with an X mm, frosting, I'll never see him again. Fred is a sucker for the current campaign of making food cute by making it small. He adores small. Frozen petite quiches, buffalo chicken wings, mini baby bell cheeses. In a perfect world, Fred would live on appetizers and croutons. I have to remember it was Fred who came up with the small diet. On the small diet, you can eat whatever you want as long as it sounds small. Baby Ruth, Junior Mints, Little Debbies, and we buy them all. I blame Kraft for this trend in the tiny and twee. The world was perfectly happy with regular-sized marshmallows till Kraft foisted jet-puffed miniatures on us in the 60s. Then Nabisco got in the act by making their horse-choking bales of shredded wheat spoon-size. 
you can just hear the marketing meetings. Sir, our research indicates we could sell more Oreos if our cookies were cuter. Oh, well, how do we do that? By making them teeny-weeny and itty-bitty. Lab results prove that at precisely one half inch around, the Oreo becomes quantifiably darling. But there's an even more amazing finding. With only slightly altered packaging in a different grocery aisle, we can call it cereal. For Fred, some foods fall into the nostalgia category. Wonder Bread, Pop-Tarts, Hostess Fruit Pies, ooh, corn dogs on a stick, he wistfully crooned as he lovingly placed a frozen three-pound box in the cart. He was upset that Franco-American had taken their classic SpaghettiOs and made them into, among other things, Where's Waldo Pasta? He wasn't sure he wanted to find Waldo or any part of him in his pasta and sauce. Good humor bars and ice cream drumsticks are also part of Fred's childhood, although he is disdainful of the people who make Klondike bars. He feels they've turned their backs on tradition by offering such travesties as almond, Neapolitan, and cappuccino flavors. He wanted to substitute Eskimo pies, but felt there was something vaguely demeaning and anti-Inuit in the name. He settled for vanilla ice cream sandwiches because, if they're sandwiches, I can eat them for lunch, right? Fred likes Canadian bacon because it's round, tidy, and imported. He didn't care for any of the strip bacon, though, until he saw a pack of lean turkey strips cunningly called Mr. Turkey. Nothing charms Fred like an animal, especially if it has an anthropomorphic name. I managed to use this to my advantage, though. Fred would ask if I thought we should get such and such an item, and I'd say, I don't know. Why don't you ask Mr. Turkey? Oh, that's right. You can't. He's dead. After doing this about three times, Fred scowled and said I'd spoiled it for him. He went back to the bacon section to return the late Mr. Turkey. Fred discovered the world of Oscar Mayer Lunchables. These are marvels of overpackaging, offering six crackers, one half ounce of sliced pressed meat, a cube of cheddar, a pouch of sugary juice, a tiny candy bar, and the notion that this could possibly be a balanced meal. He liked the concept, but this was all too much, even for him. In our good friend Frozen Foods, though, he found a brand called Kid Cuisine, which was similar to Lunchables, except they made a stab at actual nourishment. You could choose their cosmic chicken nuggets for the new age star child on the go, high-flying fried chicken, which begged the question of how high can a dead fried frozen bird fly, or magical macaroni and cheese. That last one was not only magical, but a wonder in monochrome, containing macaroni and cheese, corn, applesauce, and three lemon cookies. Too yellow, declared Fred, knowing that jewel tones complimented him best. Another brand, Fran's Healthy Helpings offered a meal in a tray called Lucky Ducky Chicken, with the chicken pressed into grim little duck shapes. I can't imagine that being seen in a positive light by either chickens or ducks. It's certainly not lucky for either. There was another meal from Fran called, I swear to God, Lovey Dovey Patty. It comes with heart-shaped pasta, a burger with a heart baked into the bun, and instructions on clotting, because anyone forced to be seen eating this in a schoolyard can be guaranteed of being beat up. How healthy is that, Fran? In the deli section, Fred found a package of half a dozen vacuum-sealed cheese balls. They're like bonbons and a party, he cried, tossing them into the basket. They're like constipation and a heart attack, I said, tossing them out. I don't know why I bother, though. The man can eat anything, and it doesn't affect him. He eats Slim Jims by the yard. He will eat jerky from any land-based animal. I am certain he has ingested so many nitrates that if you sliced him, he'd look like prosciutto. When we got it all home, it was amazing how little food there was and how happy Fred was about it. He hummed merrily as he put cans of cheese whiz in the cabinet and fistfuls of turkey gobble sticks with an X in the fridge. You know, I think I'll have some Eggos, he tells me, beaming. Want some? I remain distant and aloof. Call me old-fashioned, but I don't think waffles should be prepared vertically. 
That's okay, though. He has his food, and I have mine. I am the purest. I am the sensible one. I am eating a moon pie. Hey, Fred, I asked, mouthful of marshmallow and cake. Where'd you put that frosting? Oh, please. Just let me wallow in my... I'm happy swallow in my... Just let me wallow in my junk. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, because we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org, even during our hiatus from the over-the-air schedule during fun drives. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on In the glass of her boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said cause he made you perfect baby So hold your head up girl and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistake I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself in regret Just love yourself and you're set I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Oh, yeah I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.